Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature dwarf planets, the secret to grey hairs, and ratting rats. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe and Mark West. Socially cooperating rats may doom us all. A study published in the Public Library of Science describes rats solving the prisoner's dilemma. No, the dilemma isn't how to escape. It's about whether you cooperate with your mates or sell out to the man. It's long-term thinking winning out over short-term thinking. If rats can solve this, then they could work together and take over the world. Portuguese scientists ask the question, will rats stand together or rat each other out? The Prisoner's Dilemma is a battle of wits that uses a tiered reward system to pit two players against each other. The game goes like this. During each round, both players are asked if they want to cooperate or defect against their opponent. If both players cooperate, each player gains three points. If one player sells the other out, the winner gets five points, while the sucker, the player that doesn't defect but tries to cooperate, gets zero points. If they both sell out and defect, they each get one point. The highest payout for each round is to sell out your opponent. Yet, if the game is played over a long period of time, like in real life instead of on a game show, the key to success is for both players to continually cooperate, picking up a guaranteed three points every round. Past experiments hinted that humans are the only species capable of figuring out how to win the game the only species that concoct a strategy and sass out an opponent's strategy. But they were wrong. The Public Library of Science study, conducted by Duarte, Viana and colleagues, adapted the prisoner's dilemma for rats by giving food rewards when either both animals cooperated or one rat defected. When both rats defected, their tails were pinched. The sucker rat also had his tail pinched. Yes, this study did pass an ethics committee, the experiment used two tea mazes, stacked back to back and separated by mesh screens so that the animals could see and smell each other. The researchers fixed one rat's strategy, the stooge, to either tit for tat or even sort of a pseudo-random approach by forcing him to go either left or right to one side of the tea mazes on each trial. The experimental rat could then decide whether to cooperate with the stooge or go for the largest food payout by defecting. The results showed that rats quickly figured out their opponent's strategy. If the experimental rat defected, the stooge playing a tit-for-tat strategy would defect on the next trial. Rather than continually going after the high food reward, the experimental rat fell in line and quickly started cooperating again, avoiding a continuous cycle of defection. In fact, when competing against a tit-for-tat opponent, the rats cooperated about 60% of the time. When playing against pseudo-random opponents, where there's no clear advantage to cooperating, the cooperation rate dropped to about 20%. 
Studies conducted in other labs previously concluded that rats didn't grasp how to succeed in the prisoner's dilemma. The authors of the Portuguese study noted that in previous experiments with these low cooperation rates, the animals had been food deprived. Fully satiated rats in the Portuguese experiments freely cooperated and easily solved the prisoner's dilemma. Animals do cooperate in nature altruistically to serve the group, whether that means hunting in packs to get more meat, or a surrogate mother animal adopting an abandoned baby to boost the pack's numbers. Given that the rats in this study changed their strategy based on the game their opponent was playing, and cooperation rates were only high when the rats played against a tit-for-tat opponent, the authors showed perhaps for the first time that rats directly reciprocate. The rats played the game scarily well. They plotted and they schemed. They manipulated their opponents by taking calculated strategic risks for the high payout reward. In essence, these rodents challenged our perception of animal intelligence and proved that they too can, can master both the game and the psychological component of competition. The researchers also noted that there is an abundance of cases of reciprocal cooperation in nature, including vampire bats, tree swallows, stickle bats, blue jays, cotton-top tamarind monkeys, red-winged blackbirds, and pied flycatchers. So what, what implication does this have for the evolution of altruism? It means we're not the only animal capable of altruism. Okay. And because it's a classic uh, an example used in evolutionary teaching, I, I believe. Victoria, you were telling us about this before. The thing about evolution is that it's, it's not just once, like, you know, traditional prison dilemma. If you're arrested by some regime or in Iraq or, or wherever, you know, you could get arrested and you've got a mate in prison and you play this prisoner's dilemma game once, you might conclude that you're better off ratting your friend out to get the higher payoff rather than cooperating and getting a small payoff. And you might not trust your friend and there's all those sort of things. But mm -hmm. if it's played over and over and over and over again, and evolution is all about things going over and over and over again for years and years and centuries and millennia, then in the long term, it's always a higher payoff to cooperate. It's going to be those species that have the ability to... To be social. They'll, they'll be the ones that win in the end. Exactly. And it's, it's not even just social species. If you look at viruses over time, their virulence has a tendency to drop off. So they, when there's a new virus introduced in a population, it's extremely viral often, and it'll destroy its host. But the viruses that do the best are the ones that can keep their host happy. And so it's mutually beneficial. And those are the ones that last longer. Grey hair comes from hydrogen peroxide. Unlike bottle blondes, hair goes grey and white because hydrogen peroxide stops hair colour being produced, not due to bleaching. European researchers have discovered that a natural build-up of hydrogen peroxide hinders the synthesis of melanin, our hair and skin's natural pigment. They've published the results online in the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology Journal, FASEB. We produce hydrogen peroxide as a natural antibacterial agent. The body also produces the enzyme catalase, which breaks down hydrogen peroxide into water and oxygen. But the production of the enzyme goes down with age. So as hydrogen peroxide builds up, we go grey. In addition to lacking catalase, the follicles of grey-haired people also had far fewer hair repair enzymes, which in turn drove down the production of melanin and more grey hair. 
The authors of the study, from Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany, and the University of Bradford in England, were studying cell cultures of human hair follicles. They found the hydrogen peroxide attacks an enzyme called tyrosinase, which starts the production of melanin. The tyrosinase, and therefore melanin synthesis, is disabled when the hydrogen peroxide oxidizes a key amino acid on the enzyme. The researchers hope their findings could eventually play a role in figuring out how to prevent greying and possibly treating vitiligo, a disorder of unknown cause in which melanin is lost in patches from the skin, causing white spots to appear. This is the illness Michael Jackson had that bleached his skin and was the reason he started wearing his signature sequin glove to cover up the spots. One of the researchers, Weissman, said this research is an important step to get at the root of the problem. Yeah. Hurt mice may save balding humans using stem cells. Wound healing pathways in mice have given dermatologists clues to curing baldness. Few things strike fear into the human heart like a receding hairline. Now researchers may have hit on a gene therapy remedy for hair loss. And it might also lead to regenerative treatments for healing wounds. In experiments on mice, scientists at the University of Pennsylvania show that the skin of wounded animals can naturally generate new follicles from which individual hairs will grow. They identified a gene that's essential for normal hair development and they're able to stimulate or stop hair growth by boosting or inhibiting the protein's activity, opening the way to non-invasive therapies. Conventional wisdom has been that mammalian hair follicles were a non-renewable resource. The human head comes equipped with approximately 100,000 of these tiny hair-generating organs. And once they stopped working, the scalp was doomed to gradual exposure. The study, published in 2009 in Nature, is all the more surprising because it reproduces results observed 50 years ago in rabbits, mice and humans that were widely dismissed at the time and have been ignored ever since. The lead author of the new study, dermatologist George Cozzarellis is also a founder of the company Follica that hopes to develop new hair restoration treatments from the procedures. In the experiments, his team found that the removal of a patch of skin on the outer skin layer, the epidermis, one to two and a half centimetres in diameter, awakens stem cells with the capacity to generate new hair follicles. Once the healing was complete, the skin returned to its normal adult form. The new hair follicles grew, passed through the hair cycle, and eventually became indistinguishable from neighbouring hair. These findings could change our understanding of repair and regeneration in adult mammals. But he also cautions that human and mouse skin heals differently. To find out what was happening at a molecular level during the process, Cozzarelli and his team used mice in which the bulge cells that generate hair were genetically labelled before the wounds were inflicted, so that they could be traced. Wounding activated the signalling pathway of a gene called WNT, which is essential for normal hair development. When the scientists inhibited this pathway, it led to a substantial decrease in the number of new hairs. But in mice whose WNT activity had been artificially boosted, there was a big increase in new hair follicles compared to normal mice. They see broader implications for the study that regenerative medicine promised to identify natural healing powers and a shift from repair to regeneration by altering the environment of stem cells during wound healing. Future wounds might heal with appendages reformed. And your hair just might grow back. So what would you rather be, Ian? Grey or bald? Neither. <laughs> I would definitely be happy with a distinguished grey. Uh, I'm in the grey camp. 
my hair hasn't receded too much yet, so. <laughs> but I'm getting grey flecks when I when I don't shave for a while. Oh, uh, you see, getting too old. much hydrogen peroxide. Mm. Well, they put hydrogen peroxide in toothpaste. Do they? They do. What for? Whitening. Of course they do. No melanin on your teeth, of course. It's no melanin on your teeth. I don't know what it does. I presume it's safe and everything, but uh, mm, I'm, but not, we... I'm not sure how it works. And of course, if uh, the hydrogen peroxide could be doing other things than just graying your hair. I don't know whether it's related to why you bald, because they don't seem to really understand why that happens with male pattern baldness. Certainly not everybody goes bald. It's only people with male pattern baldness or alopecia, I believe. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. If you don't have male pattern baldness or alopecia, you generally keep your hair, even if it goes white. Hmm. Hmm. But hydrogen peroxide does all sorts of really interesting things in your body. Like it's, um, it's one of your cell's main defense against just intruders or anything like that. You keep it in uh, parts of the cell called the lysosome, and it's basically like a huge little toxic nodule that can digest anything you put in it. So very useful. You don't want to lose your hydrogen peroxide. You don't. Except in your hair. And next up, here's Mark West speaking to Charles Lineweaver of Australian National University about a new classification for dwarf planets. I recently came across your fantastically titled report, The Potato Radius, a lower minimum size for dwarf planets. And uh, there's been some controversy about dwarf planets and what is a planet. And Pluto was famously demoted from uh, planet to dwarf planet. What, what is this debate all about? Well, <laughs> I, I guess we scientists, we look up in the sky and we see things and we divided things into, in 2006, the IAU, in its wisdom, which is the International Astronomical Union, these are astronomers from all over the world who meet, I think, once every three years and, and we give names to things and classify things. And 2006 was right... There was a big debate about Pluto because a guy at Caltech named Mike Brown had discovered an object, which is now called Eris, that was larger than Pluto, not too far, too much further away from the sun than Pluto. And uh, so, was this going to be a planet or, or something else? And so they decided, instead of calling it a planet, they decided to demote Pluto into something that's called a uh, dwarf planet. Now, this is not unprecedented because in about eight, about, uh, let's see, 200 years ago, the, ast the largest asteroids in the asteroid belt were found, Ceres, for example. And people said, whoa, we found another planet. But then as they found more and more asteroids, they said, well, this isn't a planet. This is one of many bodies about the same orbit. And so we'll call them asteroids, not planets. Now, that happened 200 years ago, and people have forgotten about that debate. But it's very analogous to the one that's hap what's happening to Pluto right now. You find the largest object in a certain region. You call it a planet. And then you say, well, wait a minute. There are a whole bunch of other objects in that region as well. And that's what happened in 2006. Now, what the, the paper that we just published, or we just had accepted for publication, is uh, about not whether the, not the boundary between planets and dwarf planets, but 
this is the lower boundary of dwarf planets. How big do you get? How how big are you if you want to make it into a to be a dwarf planet? And essentially, that comes down to how big do you need to be in order to be round or spherical, like a ball? And that's called hydrostatic equilibrium. And that's what we did. We analyzed that boundary, and I called that boundary the potato radius, because essentially objects that are smaller than the potato radius are shaped like potatoes. And when objects get to have the potato radius, they start to turn into spheres. And so this tr this boundary or this transition from potatoes to spheres, I just called it the potato radius because it sounded because every small object looked like a potato and every larger object looked like a sphere, and so I thought that was a cool and catchy name to it. It's, it's very catchy. I, I love it. And and how do you go about deriving uh, the potato radius? You can you can look into the sky and see potato shapes and and sphere shapes, but uh, you've gone into the the maths of it to actually derive. Uh, when something becomes a sphere and enters this right, right. Uh, well, that we did both. We the the simplest thing we did was to look at icy moons of the outer planets, so the moons that are orbiting Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune, and look at specifically at the ones that have a radius between, let's say, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred kilometers, and to see how round they looked. Many of them, matter of fact, most of them have already had pictures taken of them in which they are resolved as a, as a disc because you need to see that disc. And if the disc looks like a potato, then it's, then it's uh, not in hydrostatic equilibrium and should not be called a dwarf planet. And, or rather, it's a little bit of a misnomer because here I am talking about the moons of other, of other things. Yes. So it, the, in terms of hydrostatic equilibrium, they're, they're, they should set the scale whether they're orbiting a planet or not. And so that's why they can be used as a, as a calibration of the uh, potato radius. And so we looked at objects, uh, icy moons, in this uh, size regime and found out that, hey, when you look at these icy moons, if they're above a radius of 200 kilometers, they're spherical, they're balls, they're in hydrostatic equilibrium. And if they're little, they're less than that, they're smaller than that, then they're kind of, you know, they shape more like potatoes. And so based on this, just a quick and dirty uh, look at these things, we said the potato radius should be about 200 kilometers. So that was one part of the study. The other study was, okay, let's derive this based on the physics. And so we figured out what the pressure is as a function of depth and the density of these things and how strong they are. These are all factors that go into the calculation. And lo and behold, the calculation came out with about 200 kilometers as well. And so here we have the, the icy moons telling us that that's the potato radius, 200 kilometers. We have the calculation telling us 200 kilometers. And then uh, my co-author pointed out to me, he says, you know what, the, the, the radius that's now being used is twice this big. And I said, oh, is that right? And then I talked to a colleague up here who's job it is to monitor bodies in trans-Neptunian objects. And she is working with Mike Brown, who discovered this object larger than Pluto, but they've also discovered lots and lots of objects which are have radius of 100, 200, 300, 400 kilometers. And it turned out that if this suggestion that we're making is taken seriously, then there would be 50 new bodies that are already known would be classified as dwarf planets. 
And then we said, well, if that's the case, then uh, instead of having f- how many dwarf planets are there now? And there are only five. And so I said, well, that's inconsistent with the IAU's uh, classification system, at least if we're right about this potato radius. And so that's what the story is, that we have found that the lower size limit of dwarf planets should be half as big as the one that's being used now. It's it's a, a fall from grace for Pluto, isn't it, from a fully-fledged uh, well, paid-up membership of the, of the Planet Club? Well, there are two ways to look at it. One is, you know, hey, the... The classification of being a dwarf planet is like an elite club, and as long as there are a few members, it's elite. But it's kind of like the Qantas club, and then you're a member, <laughs> and you think you're all elite, and then, boom, in come a bunch of people who, you know, the price went down, and then and the whole airport is coming into the Qantas club. It's, and, a, it's a great uh, analogy, actually. I always thought being a member of the Qantas club would be great until they made me a member, and then I thought, no, I don't really want to be a member of a club that <laughs> right. invites they're, me. If they're making yeah. me a member, they're making everybody else a member, too. That's right. <laughs> What's the quality of the food going to be if they're letting everybody Everybody in. Uh, that's one way to look at it. But there's another way to look at it. You know, it's like, hey, Pluto's kind of lonely out there with four other dwarf planets. But now that it's got 50 friends out there, it's got a lot to people, a lot of other things to do. <laughs> you can look at it that way too. These emotions are really inaccurate guides of how we should understand the solar system. <laughs> so, so would all these new uh, dwarf planets be trans-Neptunian objects? Are they all in the far reaches of the solar system? Yes. Yes. Okay. And do you think there would be a better way to classify dwarf planet then if this if this is the implication or is it is it is it all this is just the way it is? Well, I, I think it's just the way it is. However, it's not something that has been accepted yet. Uh, I mean, right now, I, I should mention that the trans-Neptunian objects that have been discovered, their sizes are not well known. We just have estimates of them. It be, that's because, as far as our telescopes right now are concerned, we can see them as points of light. And we estimate their sizes from how bright they are, not from how big they are in our telescopes, because essentially they're just points. Mm -hmm. So we can get estimates of how big they are and then using those estimates classify them. And that's what I'm talking about when I say there's 50 known objects whose estimated radiuses, radii, are above this 200-kilometer limit that we think that should be used rather than the 400-kilometer radius that is currently being used. It's very interesting. I I was thinking about this uh, on a related topic, I think, just recently. I can't remember the exact details, but they discovered a a planet which was so big that it was almost a failed star, and they didn't know whether to define it as a a planet or, or as a star. Do you think that these the definitions of, of planets and astronomical bodies, they're, they're very much based around our solar system. Do they work on other solar systems? They work if they're based on fundamental physics. Now, you just mentioned uh-huh. the distinction between a planet and a brown dwarf and a star. Now, the, what we, um, for example, if you take a Jupiter and make it bigger and bigger and bigger until it gets to be about, oh, uh, let's see, about 13 or 15 or 17 Jupiter masses, then it becomes what's called a brown dwarf. And if you make that even bigger and bigger and bigger until you get about 80 Jupiter masses, then the brown dwarfs turn into stars. And the reason they turn into stars is that they start to burn hydrogen in their cores. So that's pretty much that's a very fundamental physical distinction when a brown dwarf turns into a star because it starts burning hydrogen. Now, the difference between a large Jupiter and a small brown dwarf is that brown dwarfs at the beginning of their lifetimes burn deuterium. 
deuterium is a little bit easier to burn than hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And so there, again, is a fundamental distinction that is used to separate the word planet from brown dwarf and brown dwarf from star. So those are uh, distinctions that have nothing to do really with, with our solar system, but have to do with the temperatures and pressures needed at the centers of these objects in order to uh, have deuterium or hydrogen go through nuclear fusion. And I, I guess that uh, your work on, on dwarf planets are, is calculated from fundamental physics, so it should work. So it should that's work right, everywhere. That's right. Uh, that's because what we did was calculate how much gravity do you need to deform material of a given what's called compressive strength, or just the strength of the material. So the stronger the material, like iron or titanium, the harder it is to deform into a sphere. And so, according to our calculations, the icy moons should deform into spheres when they have a radius of 200 kilometers, but the rocky, uh, not moons, the icy objects, uh, and rocky objects should become spheres only when they get to be 300 or maybe 350 kilometers in radius. So there's a difference between whether you're made out of ice or made out of rock. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were... Mark West and Ian Wolf. Diffusion has been produced by Mark West in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion. <laughs>